This morning, our passage comes from Matthew chapter 6. If you would open your Bibles if you have them. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 19 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. You can follow along on the screen also. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. This then is the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Would you join me in prayer? Father, even now as we come to your word, we are dependent on you to provide what we need. Feed us now in our souls. Fill us up as we are empty. Provide for us the trust to serve you alone, even with the bare necessities of life. Help me now to preach in a way that honors Christ with clarity of what your word says. Do this so he gets all the glory. In his name we pray. Amen. We never set out to build the largest house in America. It just sort of happened that way. Those are the words of a woman named Jackie Siegel, the wife of David Siegel. David is the largest 
timeshare tycoon in the world, CEO of Siegel Industries. Back in 2004, they decided to set out to build their dream house. And it turns out their dreams are pretty big. Their house clocked in at a humble 90,000 square feet of prime lakefront real estate, mind you. It has humble amenities like 32 bathrooms, a 30-car garage, a two-lane bowling alley, an indoor roller skate rink, three indoor pools, a ballroom with a capacity of over 1,000 people with the floors inlaid with amethyst and gold, a 10,000-foot spa, an aquarium, two tennis courts, and my personal favorite, no less than 10 kitchens. Now, you may be thinking that they've lost touch with the world with 10 kitchens, but Jackie's quoted as saying, people always want to know, why do you need 10 kitchens? But what they don't understand is most of the kitchens are for the servants. I'm sure most of us can empathize with that, right? Yeah, how do you have enough kitchens for your, all your servants? Well, sometimes it's obvious when the love of money and the things it brings really takes a hold of someone's heart. And we live in a day and age that glorifies materialism. We know lots and lots about the Kardashians for really no reason except they have a lot of money and they're on TV. People are obsessed with the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, the houses they live in. None of us, if we take, look deeply enough in our hearts, none of us is truly free from the allure of money and the things it brings. Because money seems to promise us all the basic necessities of life. Success, happiness, security. And yet the tragedy of it all is money can't truly give us any of those things. Jesus knows that. Which is why he preached this section of the Sermon on the Mount. To graciously free his disciples from the miserable master that's money. To show them that they are to serve God alone and to make their wealth into a tool for his purpose in this world. We'll see that as we move through this passage in, in two sections. In 19 through 24, we'll see Jesus warn us, beware of your wealth. It wants to enslave you. And then in verses 25 through 34, we'll see him say, be freed of your worry to make God's kingdom your ambition. And all this we'll see that disciples of Jesus can't allow money to be the thing we live our lives for in this world. We are to find joy and peace and satisfaction in serving God alone with all of the resources he's given us. Let's begin by looking at 19 through 24, where Jesus warns us, beware of your wealth. Last couple of weeks, as we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been showing us uh, truly what's going on with what's called religious hypocrisy. That idea that you do your religious actions in front of people to be seen by them so you can hear their approval. The problem is if you get the approval of men, you miss out on the approval of God. As Jesus has unmasked this, we've seen that the love of men excludes true love of God. Well, this week he moves from love of men to love of money. Now he's going to show us how our resources can actually themselves turn into an idol and keep us from the 
wholehearted pursuit of God that all disciples of Jesus are called to. He's going to do this in this first section by warning us in very stark terms about how money wants to get chains on our hearts. He's going to do that by giving, put, putting before us three decisions. Think of them as three forks in the road that will lead you to the conclusion that you must serve God and not your money. The first of those forks is in verses 19 through 21. He asks the question, where is your treasure? In verse 19, he starts off telling us, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, even this week, the Swedish crown jewels were stolen out of a church where they were on display. Uh, a gang of thieves managed to get through the security glass and get out before the police arrived. And as far as I know, they still have no leads. These priceless jewels are gone with no hope of recovery. Turns out that wasn't a safe place for treasure that valuable. Jesus here tells us that this earth is not a safe place for your treasure. He lays out two different ways that your treasure could be taken away from you. The first is rot. Now, Treasure in the ancient East, the way people accumulated wealth, is a little different than today. People didn't have 401ks and debit cards and stocks and bonds. Treasure was gathered up in stuff you could put your hands on. Gold coins or fine clothing or cattle. But just because you put your hands on your wealth doesn't mean it can't just as easily slip through your fingers. Jesus says here that rot can actually make your wealth evaporate, just eat it away. Maybe it's worms that eat through valuable paper like books or deeds. Maybe it's all the byproduct of vermins and rats that causes corrosion on precious metals. Whatever it is, Jesus reminds us, you live in a world that is heading towards disorder. Whatever you store up on this world, somehow or the other, it's going to come undone. Your treasure's not safe here. The second threat is that of theft. He says where thieves break in and steal. The, the Greek there actually has the idea of digging in. Uh, the houses back in the ancient East weren't built of the type of materials we use today. They would use uh, sun-dried mud bricks. And if you had the right sort of shovel or pick, you could literally dig your way through someone's house, getting into the place where they stored their most valuable possessions. Now the Threats today might not be perfectly analogous, yet this principle remains the same. Maybe it's not corrosion or moths and worms you're worried about, but maybe it's inflation. Maybe you're not worried about someone digging through your living room wall to get to your valuables, but you're worried about identity theft or some sort of a Ponzi scheme that could steal your money. Jesus' message is this earth is not a safe place for what you value most. Instead, he says, store up your treasure somewhere where it can't be taken from you. Store it up in heaven. That's what he tells us there in uh, verse 19. Sorry, I lost my place for a second. Uh, verse 20, sorry. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, Jesus is clearly not saying 
take all of your earthly goods and put them on some sort of heavenly elevator to have them waiting for you up in heaven when you arrive. The, the treasures he's talking about are a different sort altogether. Now, there have been some that have tried to take this and turn it into some sort of like a workspace salvation, like you do enough good works on this earth and you're accruing for yourself blessings in heaven and one day when you arrive there, you use them for yourself. That, that's not what Jesus is getting at. Remember, this is the same Jesus that told us it's only the spiritually bankrupt, the poor in spirit who will enter the kingdom of God. Everything we've received from God is purely of his grace. And yet, there is a sort of treasure that you can have, that you can be storing up for yourself right now as you do things with eternal value. Friend, your 401k will never follow you into heaven. But a friend that you lead to Christ will. You know, the house that you build, no matter how well you maintain it, it won't ultimately last. But Jesus tells us if you spend yourself building his kingdom, you will see the effects of it forever and ever and ever. And friends, that is a treasure worth having. Jesus tells us here, this earth and the treasures it can provide is never going to satisfy. It's not safe here. But when your focus is up in heaven, the deposits you make will bear interest in your soul here on earth. First warning is that we need to beware of where our treasure is. Second, verse 22 through 23, he asks, what sort of eye do you have? Now, this is a hard idiom, a hard saying he uses to translate. He says, uh, "What you? Uh, sorry, I lost my place again. Here we go. Flip the page, Tommy. There we go. Uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, that image of an eye and the lamp is not obvious to us exactly what he's getting at. Now, it's helpful here if you know a little bit of your Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the eye and the heart at times can be synonymous for each other. So, for example, if you look at Psalm 119, it's a form of Hebrew poetry, and oftentimes it'll use one concept, and then it'll fill that concept out with a second, uh, a second verse that says the same thing using different words. So, verse 36 of Psalm 119, it says, Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Then in verse 37 it says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. So, the I and the heart in the Old Testament uh, mind oftentimes go together. They're, they're both talking about what we call your inner person. It's talking about that which you value the most. So in this idiom, in this saying that Jesus gives us, he warns us about what happens when a heart starts to be desirous, most of all, of money and the things it brings. He says it's a little bit like if you walked into a dark room with a lamp, close the door, and shut the lamp off. At that point, you are effectively blind. So it is with the person that allows their heart to be captivated by wealth and the trappings of it. It blinds you morally and spiritually. It helps you to justify behavior that you would never otherwise think is okay. Think about the people that you find that have been committing fraud, 
been stealing from people, even from people's pensions. You, know, you ever ask yourself, how did someone get to a place where they justified that sort of behavior? You can see it oftentimes in divorces, the way people just grab after stuff at the expense of others. And you ask yourself, how does someone's heart and mind get so darkened that they arrive there? Jesus is warning us here, friend, the love of money will corrupt you. It will darken your soul if you let it. You have to choose. What sort of eye will you have? Will you allow the love of money and all the beauty that it brings, will you allow that into your soul or will you instead let your eye be good? Will you keep it on the things of heaven? Third decision, most fundamental, who will you serve in verse 24? It says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As Jesus so often does, he does not allow us a middle ground here. Many of us would like the idea of being able to serve God on the weekends and live for ourselves during the week, don't we? You know, you can work two jobs, you can have two bosses, but you can't have two masters. Jesus uses the image here of slavery. You are either owned by one slave master or the other. You can't be shared between two. Before us, Jesus puts a fork in the road that will decide the whole course of our life. Friend, will you serve God or will you serve money? As you chew on that, I want you to consider what it is your two different masters here are offering you. Money offers you happiness, status, security, it claims it'll give you everything you want in this life, everything that glitters and gold. And friend, it'll actually take what's most valuable from you. Money is a miserable master. No matter how much of it you get, it'll never be enough. There'll always be another level of security, another level of status. And friend, think far enough forward in your life. One day you will exit this world and you will not take any of the money that you've accrued with you. You've entered this world with nothing, we'll leave it with nothing. Consider your other master. What sort of a master is your heavenly father? Not just happiness he offers you, but true joy, no matter what circumstances are in your life. You're after status? When you're considered a son or daughter of the king? When you're promised you'll reign with Christ forever and ever? How about security? This week, Eric Swanson in the office told me, we shouldn't be about social security. We should be about eternal security. I think that's a good way of putting it. See, as Christians, we should see there's really no contest between the two. The love of money is a poor, poor master. And yet, it's so easy for our hearts to be captivated by it, for our souls to be corrupted. I'd say that because I've lived it. To my shame, uh, early on in my Christian life, I worshipped the idol of money. Um, when I was in college, I got, 
I figured out my career path was going to be down the route of computer programming. I, I got a good job and figured out my way up the corporate ladder. It was a time where it was really hard to get a good job, and so I was very fortunate to get the one I did. I seemed to be doing well. I was getting good grades. My job thought my performance was good. I was offered raises and promotions. Uh, my plan to save up money for graduate school so I could earn even more money. It seemed to just all be clicking along. But there was one problem. My senior year in college, I came to know Jesus as my master. And over the next couple years, as I was working my way up the corporate ladder, I started to realize that there was something more that God was calling me to. I started to sense a call into ministry. Now, I wish I could tell you that when God put before me the choice of serving him, or continuing on the path of the dream that I had of being a successful businessman in technology, that I easily left behind that which I had been building to follow Jesus. But actually, it took about six months, and a good mentor friend who would not take no for an answer, who kept on putting my feet to the fire and saying, Tommy, if God is calling you to ministry, then you leave your job and you do it today. Friend, to my shame... I was not up to the task. My faith needed six months to get to the place that I would serve God over my money. But over 10 years in the past now, I look back on that decision, and friend, I have no regrets. And neither will you. Oh, I don't imagine that God is calling you to leave your job. For most of us, that's not the path he has forward. But friend, whatever you need to do to serve God, and not the instrument that money is supposed to be. Friend, that's a step you need to take. Maybe it's not spending so much time in the office so that you can be here on a Sunday to worship consistently. Maybe it's prioritizing your family's care and discipleship over making a few more bucks. You know, one of the ways that we fight off the love of money is by giving it away. Jesus has a principle for us that we skipped over. If you go back to verse 21, he said this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, most of the time we think of it that if our heart is somewhere, our money will follow, and that's certainly true. But Jesus actually here gives us a very practical step. Friend, if you want to fight off the love of money, put your money where it should be in the first place. I've been so encouraged by the generosity of so many of you. This ministry does not happen if not by, by your sacrificial giving and the giving of so many over at College Park in North Indy. Friend, remember that as you give, you're not just enabling God to do things in this world. As Luke prayed earlier, God has the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything in this world is his. He has no lack of resources. Now, the reason we give is actually grace. God graciously allows us to be part of what he's doing in this world. And when he does, he helps to free our hearts, the chains of the miserable master of money. Friend, if you're struggling, you find your mind going again and again to how you can accrue more things for yourself in this world. Can I encourage you just to start giving stuff away? If you're worried about not knowing how much to give away, just start doing it. See if your heart does not follow. There's plenty of places to, to give it that are good for God's kingdom. The local church, obviously. 
supporting Christian schools, missionaries around the world. You could support uh, Christian mercy efforts. Friend, take Jesus' warning here seriously. If you're not actively fighting the love of money, chances are it's starting to wrap its chains around you, even this morning. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, Tommy, that's all well and good. I I understand I shouldn't be living my life for money, but that's really not my struggle. I'm more concerned about, you know, just making ends meet, just feeding my kids, just making sure they have the basic necessities. Well, that's where Jesus goes in his second word to us in verses 25 through 34. He just told us, beware of your wealth. Now he tells us, be free of your worry. Make the kingdom your ambition. We live in what, <clears throat> what some call an age of anxiety. The generation that is coming up behind millennials, uh, some uh, researchers are referring to them as the I generation, kind of like how Apple calls their products iPod, iPad, etc. Uh, the I generation is known for being simultaneously the safest and the most anxious of any generation on record. As researchers have figured out what trends are in this generation, they've noticed that teens and uh, people in this category are less likely to engage in what we call risky behaviors, you know, uh, breaking the law, using drugs, premarital sex, things like that. And yet they're simultaneously the most worried about their safety and the future of any generation on record. This day and age is an anxious one, which is why Jesus' word is so timely. He tells us, do not be anxious. He says it three times. Look with me. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Look down in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Then again in verse 34, therefore do not be anxious. Now, even as I read those verses, I know some of us are beginning to become anxious about being told not to be anxious. It's just the way it works, right? So I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't just command us not to be anxious. He actually gives us reasons not to. Two of them, in fact. The first is in verses 25 through 30. He tells you not to be anxious because this is your father's world. Just like that old hymn that so many of you love, this is your father's world. God made everything, including you and the world you live in. Therefore, we should not be anxious. He gives four examples of this. The first in verse 25 is that God gave you life. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This is a form of what we call an argument from the greater to the lesser. He establishes something that's harder and then says, well, if that's true, then surely something easier would follow. In this case, he says, what's harder for God to do? To have you sitting here this morning being a living, breathing human being or giving you the basic things you need in life? What's harder for God to do, friend? To give you life or to give you lunch? To give you skin on your back or to put a shirt on your back? Jesus says the fact that each of us are alive and even hearing this message is a testimony to the fact that God's already done the hard part. 
Surely he's going to do the easy part, providing the things you need to survive. The next two examples are the flip side of that coin. He uses arguments from nature to say that you can trust God to provide. In verse 26, he uses the example of birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He says, look at the example of the things God has made that are not worth as much as you. Now, if you've ever watched birds, they are not passive creatures. We just had one fly into one of our windows the other night to remind us of that. Birds are buzzing around up in the air constantly. We even have a phrase for how fastidious birds are. The early bird catches the worm, right? Uh, They're constantly in search of food. They're creating nests for themselves. But friend, do you ever see a bird grinding its beak in anxiety? Do you ever see a bird wringing its wings because it's so worried? No, they're, they're chirping and flying and dive bombing you on some days. They're, they're out there doing their thing, right? And birds are able to live because there's food on this earth that their heavenly father provided for them. Surely, friend, you're worth more than a bird, aren't you? The second example is that from a flower. It's in verses 28 through 30. Uh, sorry, verse, uh, yeah. And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus uses the example of a type of flower that still grows in the Palestinian countryside. It springs up and has this beautiful purple hue to it. Now remember back then, purple was worth more than its weight in gold. For you to be clothed in purple meant you were extremely wealthy or you were royalty. Jesus says, look out at the countryside and look at these flowers and realize they have something that the richest in this world wish that they had. That the purple that they're wearing is even more beautiful than what King Solomon wore in all of his splendor. And yet those flowers, they live for a day or two before the hot Middle Eastern sun turns them into straw. Friend, aren't you worth more than a flower? Jesus' logic is simple. If, If he made this world and he cares for the creation within it, won't he care for us? those who are made in his image. The third example is that, uh, sorry, the fourth example is that of futility. That's in verse 27. It says, "And, uh, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? This time he uses uh, uh, an idiom that it's trying to get across a, a small increment of length, like a few inches. And he imagines as if your life is a journey. And he says, before you even enter this earth, God has put out before you the length of your life. No amount of worrying can add even an inch to the end of it. In fact, research has shown worrying might shorten it a little bit. Ulcers and other diseases that come about from excessive worry. Jesus' point is, Your father is in control. Are you worried? 
First, he tells us, don't be worried because this is your father's world. Second, you are your father's child. That's in 31 through 34. This time he starts off by looking at contrast. He, he looks to the godless world of the pagans. He says, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Much like today, the godless parts of the world back in Jesus' day were experts at getting the things that they thought were most essential. You don't have to believe in God to understand how to save a bunch of money. You don't have to believe in God to know how to build a nice house. And especially if you don't think there's someone caring for you, someone giving you a purpose in life, you're probably going to come to the conclusion, you better get what you can while you can. Jesus tells us that it's godless to act in such a way. It's the way the pagans act. But then he tells us, but it's not to be that way among you. Look, look, in verse, look with me at verse 31 again. What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, much like in the Lord's Prayer, we saw by talking about his heavenly Father, Jesus is assuming there that we are children of God. If you're a parent in this room, you know how much you care for your children. You know how much if they have a need, how you will do anything to meet it for them. Jesus here appeals to the fact that we as his followers are actually God's children. Can't we trust him to care for us? So what then are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to sit back and let go and let God just passively go through this world, allowing God to fill in every need we have along the way with no ambition on our own? Well, Jesus won't let us do that. But really the whole thing he's been driving to is verse 33. This is the main point of what he's trying to get us to. It's really the antidote for worry. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus tells us here that you are to have an ambition, even a purpose a positive thing you are seeking after constantly. And that thing is to be the kingdom of God, even God's character in your life. There may be some of you here this morning that are anxious about necessities. You don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from. You don't know how your utility bill will get paid. You don't know who your son or daughter will marry. You're worried about these things. It's not wrong to worry about these things to a level. Yet if you allow that worry to take on a life of its own, eventually it'll paralyze you. And really, friend, it's just a form of living as if God were not involved with your life. Jesus tells you, remember your heavenly father. Remember his kindness he's already shown you. And do away with your worry. Some of us here this morning need to be reminded that we are to have a godly sort of ambition in our lives. We're content to sit back and just kind of coast through life. Yet Jesus will not allow us to let go and let God as if we are not supposed to work hard. Remember, Jesus himself was a carpenter. The Apostle Paul worked with his hands in addition to working night and day for the ministry. 
We are to, above all people, to use the time and resources we have in this world for God's kingdom. What Jesus tells us here is if you have God's ambition as your own goal in life, you will find all your other needs will be met. My friend, this isn't the prosperity gospel. This is not here saying that if you come to church every Sunday and read your Bible, you're going to have a really nice car, a really nice house. But this is saying that you can trust God and let him work out the details. You work on pursuing him with everything you've got. I know this is the last Sunday for many of the college students that have been with us over the summer. I want to ask you, have you thought through how you're going to use your career for God's kingdom? Would you be willing to take a job that pays less if it allowed you the flexibility of doing some sort of ministry? Would you be willing to go to a far distant part of the world and do whatever it is you're studying if that might be the way that God brings the gospel to an area that's lacking gospel witnesses? We ought to be the most ambitious people on this earth, but not for our own dreams, for the kingdom of heaven. Maybe that's not you this morning. Maybe instead you're struggling. Even as we've talked about your heavenly father's care, you have wounds and you're frankly struggling to find the faith to say, yes, God will provide. Friend, I want you to hear this last word Jesus gives us in verse 34 because it gives us the way forward when we're in the thick of waiting on God to provide. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus says just take it one day at a time. One day at a time. If there's sufficient trouble for the day, that means there's a limit to how much trouble God will allow. If there's sufficient trouble, that also means there's sufficient grace for the day. Dear brothers and sisters, we are not told here to take on the cares of tomorrow or the day after. Just the troubles for the day. God's mercy is new each morning. You can trust your heavenly father. And if all you can do is think about how to get through the day, friend, Jesus gives you license to do just that. Even this week, I was so encouraged to hear from four different people that I've been praying with. The Lord provided jobs for them this week. Now, I know that that is not the case for everyone. There are still people that are waiting. And yet again and again, God's people have found him to be true to his promises. He may not provide everything we want, but he certainly provides that which we need the most. We are people who have had our greatest need paid for when Jesus went to the cross, where he gave up his life full of riches so that by his poverty, we might know the riches of God. Brothers and sisters, you can trust your heavenly father. Maybe this week, you need to let go. Let go of your worry. Let go of your anxiety and admit to God that you have not been trusting him the way you ought to. Friend, Jesus is full of mercy and he longs to restore you and give you the joy that your money could never give you. The joy that only comes when you pursue him with everything in your life. We've seen Jesus warn us, beware of your wealth. It wants to enslave you. And now he told us, be free of your worry to make the kingdom your ambition. 
In just a moment, we're going to sing a couple songs, the second of which is called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I just want you to listen to what the lyrics of those songs tell us because they sum up verse 34 so well. Tell us, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, don't allow money to be your master. Serve Jesus alone. Find everything you ever needed and more. Let's pray.